0: We don't predict interest rates in that we don't take positions on what interest rates are going to be like, you know, we hedge our pipeline, we hedge our mortgage servicing rights asset, but you have to kind of look at what you believe interest rates will be doing in order to plan your business. And so, you know, like I said, we've taken actions such that, you know, we're very defensive on the size of the mortgage market, put it that way. And that's a function not only of interest rates, but of uh, inventory of affordability, et cetera.
1: Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast, and today's guest is Willie Newman, President and CEO of HomePoint. In this conversation, we talk about navigating market cycles, building more resilient mortgage banks with better technology and workflows, and ensuring that IMBs are staffed and resourced properly and efficiently for today's volume, which is notably lower than it was 12 months ago. This is really a playbook conversation for housing industry executives and professionals that have their eye on the horizon and aren't afraid to use a housing market cycle to win in the long term. I really hope you enjoy this thoughtful and strategic conversation with Willie Newman. I was... a. Uh, getting ready for this episode and kind of going through some of the top news stories on, on housing wire this morning and over the last week and, uh, mercy. There's a, there's a lot going on in the industry right now.
0: <laughs> I'll say, uh, it's a very, it's a very unique time. Clayton. Very unique time. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm thrilled you're able to join us. I've, I've had the pleasure of interviewing Phil shoemaker before and, uh, but excited to, to get you on housing news and, and talk about the the mortgage market and, and home Point and this, uh, eventful market we're working through uh hopefully that's found there's some opportunities out there but there certainly are challenges that i that i think we're all um navigating so uh we've, we've had this podcast on the on the books for a little while now i think link over a month and since we uh we set the set the plan to do the interview the markets changed a bit, so how would you describe? <laughs> I'll give you the laugh on that. So, uh, how would you describe the market we're we're working through right now? I'm sure you have to answer that question quite often, but how do you kind of describe what we're what we're going through right now, Willie?
0: Yeah, well, the reason I laugh is that it, it literally feels like you put together a plan, and then a week later you say, "Well, all these variables have changed. Is this the right plan or not?" So. You know, normally plants are more like years, not not months or even days, to a certain extent. So, so yeah, um, I think you know, there's it, it's obviously very challenging, and I think there's a couple characteristics or, or um, I guess data points that really demonstrate that. Um, I think one is, and there's a couple of graphs that that um, are kind of been distributed in the industry. One is the gap between the trend in industry employment and the trend in production. So if you use like the MBA application index as one indicator of produ- or indicator of production and then you have the overall employment in the industry, overall employment's down about 10% and production's down about 60%. So, you know, to me that indicates that we still have a ways to go to to rationalize the capacity in the industry which means there's going to be some level of I guess volatility and uncertainty and you know, whether it's production levels, margins, um, right-sizing organizations, whatever it is, um, you know. So I think there's still like a lot, a long way to go out there. Uh, the second is this whole confluence of um, housing supply, interest rates, um, the economic environment, employment, and you know, it's for Clayton for the. It's like not every indicator points to the same trend. So as an example, you have an employment which has been really strong. And then you have, and then, and then you have other indicators like housing, you know, which has kind of gone now upside down from, from being very, uh, you know, very strong growth, very strong home price depreciation to, you know, flattening out and even lowering in prices in some markets. So uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of like mixed indicators out there, but I'd say overall, uh, you know, it, it looks like it's going to be a very challenging market into 23.
1: So that gap, 10%, uh, Employment being down 10% in the industry, but production being down 60%. That's still a, that's a, that's a huge chasm to cross. Do you like, do you think that there's operators that have just been slow to, to rationalize headcount? Or is there hope that production turns around in Q1 and that gap closes through, through volume? Like, where do you think the operator, the IMB executive mentality is and thinking about, um, what, how they anticipate that gap being closed?
0: Yeah, so I think it's gone from optimism about production now to to more um, kind of holding on um, for I'll say better days in the longer term. And I think you know, when when rates is an example, when rates were at five or mortgage rates were at five, there may have not have been the same opportunity and from refinance perspective for for rate and term, but cash out seemed to still be of benefit to a number of consumers. And so it's like, okay, you know, if I can do this for a period of time, kind of flip my production dynamic, then I can uh, kind of work my way through. Now that rates are more like seven, cash out refinances are not even attractive for most consumers. And therefore, you know, it's not kind of that, I'll say, bridge from this environment to, you know, potentially kind of a more recovered environment. So I think, I do think, one, mortgage bankers generally tend to be a little bit over, overly optimistic. And that's probably because for a long time, we were, to a certain extent, bailed out by interest rates. Um, so optimism was rewarded um, by recovery. Um, also, though, it does take a lot to build a, you know, build a company, build capacity. And it's very hard to let go of that when, um, you know, you put all the work into it and you kind of have it the way you want it. You know, we've had to kind of cross that bridge or maybe chasm <laughs> at home point, um, uh, you know, recently. And uh, so I think it's hard for for uh, for owners of companies and CEOs to say, I did all this work over the last three years or four years or five years to build this. And now I'm going to take it down.
1: I mean, as you think about strategies that, that you've employed or other IMB execs have employed to do what you can to reduce the the cost burden of uh, being essentially over, overstaffed where, where volumes are now, but to try to maintain the ability or maintain the the capability of production capacity if, and when the market is in a different place without having to go through this kind of, brutal recruiting ecosystem that we operated in for the for most of the last three years where it was a there's a battle for talent i can probably probably published a dozen articles about the battle for talent and uh it's it's a little bit different now how do you think about like the right way to not cut muscle and not cut into bone but like maintain the culture that you've built the capabilities you've built but bringing the business back to a place that enables you to see the other side
0: yeah, so I, I'll give you a little insight on what we've done at HomePoint. So we have had substantial reductions in our workforce. Uh, you know, we've tried to um, do everything the right way, whether it's how we, you know, let people go or how we make sure we're connected to the people that we retain. But I think for us, you know, we feel like it's an opportunity in that we got to be a pretty big organization, and in that, um, you know, sometimes it's it's challenging to extend the culture out when you're growing as rapidly as you are. Conversely, when you downsize, you have, you know, frankly, just have fewer associates to touch. And so you know, we're, we're kind of personalizing things a lot more now with our associates because we can actually do that. So there's some things that, as an example, there's some things that, that I used to do three and four years ago from a video standpoint, from an um, uh, interview perspective with our associates that I stopped doing because we were just too big to do it. and And now I'm back to doing it in part because that's what our associates asked. They said, we kind of want to do some of the things that we used to do when we were smaller. And we said, well, now we're smaller. So, you know, why not, why not, why not do it? I think the second thing is that for us is that um, we're really taking this opportunity to reset the organization. And so we grew, when we grew rapidly, there are some things that we did in order to expand our capacity because the market opportunity was so significant that weren't quite as scalable or durable as we would have wanted them to be in a perfect world. But the opportunity was so great. And now what we can do, because we're not overloaded with volume, is we can actually engineer or re-engineer processes uh, and leverage technology to a greater extent so that the kind of next time it happens, we'll be in a better position to take advantage of it at a lower, more efficient kind of um, uh, footprint.
1: I think our Housing News listeners are probably sick of me seeking out a solution to a more elastic mortgage market that knows how to, to flex up and down and in, in different cycles. I think it's been a, I've used the word elastic in probably every episode in the last 20 weeks, but uh, it sounds like you actually are pointing at a, uh, a mission or a vision toward building a more elastic organization. If you have, as you have the chance to think about re-engineering processes
0: and, and introducing new technology. It's not, Clayton, it, it, it's so interesting that you say that because that's exactly how we're thinking about it. It's like we have to we have to try to figure out how to get off the cycle of you know massive ramp and then massive decline. We have to find some middle ground, and, you know. And frankly, maybe it's it's you know you don't grow as rapidly when things are good, so that you don't have to flex down as much when things are tougher. But you know, so maybe there's some of that too. Uh, now, like I said, I will say that 2020 was just such a unique opportunity, especially for where we were at in our kind of you know in our uh, evolution that. Um, you know, we felt like we had to take full advantage of it, but but yeah, I, I think I think the industry has to try to figure that out, and I, that's certainly where we're focused home. I mean, there's lenders that
1: have been criticized or kind of you know like put in a box because they did a ton of refi volume and and hired up really quickly to to handle that refi volume. And I had a conversation with Anthony Shea about this, and I, I appreciated his perspective. Like, hey. If a lender doesn't ramp up and handle the refi volume in a refi market, you leave millions of homeowners who should have had a refi and uh, had a lower rate up. Un- underserved and like so the industry did what it had to do to meet the market demand and as painful as it is from an employment perspective and um and it, it just business management business valuation perspective homeowners were served and uh and i i you know it's hard to look in the rearview mirror and see that bright spot but it, it does seem like it is a, a function the industry had to do and it's just it's a shame there's not a more elastic way to handle Huge pumps in volume, um, and serve the consumer, reap the benefits of cash flow, but uh, but also not have to totally reinvent organizations on the other side.
0: No question. I mean, I think if you think about it, we're the victim of our own success because because now there's no one to refinance. So obviously, rates have gone up a lot. But but I mean, if as Anthony said, millions of homeowners were benefited from the industry's ability to ramp up capacity so quickly, but, but yeah, it would, it would be more um, sustainable if we were to be able to uh, figure out how to do it in a way that kind of, that, that was less uh, kind of violent on their ups and down on the ups and downs. Yeah, yeah. If there was other
1: levers to pull besides like pure, purely adding headcount, so as, as you think about reinventing processes and implementing new technology, are there any specific areas of your business at HomePoint that you're that you're focused on right now where you think there is a there's an opportunity to to move the needle and um, the ability to uh, like cert, have more capacity per team member?
0: So, there's really, two things. One and one is. Uh, workflow, and so we've been for for several years now working with a, a workflow tool called Appian. It's a you know, kind of industrial strength, industry agnostic tool that allows us to move our users, our, our our internal associates, kind of up a I'll say up a layer from the origination system into somewhere where we can more effectively um, kind of dictate the workflow, make it more consistent, uh, make it more intuitive, tie it into the rules engine that we use. Such that, um, the individual associate becomes more efficient and more consistent in how, how they do things. Uh, the next kind of horizon for us, and we've done some of this, but, but we're going to do more in 23, which is self-serve. So, you know, as you know, our business is wholesale. And so the more we can extend services and uh, processes out directly to our broker partners, um, the more flexible. It is for them to be able to integrate it into their workflow and the more we're really kind of delegating work to the appropriate place so it doesn't have to be redone, et cetera. So, you know, not only should that provide benefit for our broker partners and how they operate with us, it should provide benefit for us because we're not kind of redoing things that have already been done.
1: Interesting. Okay, so workflow, which impacts internal operations internal operations as well as impacting your broker partners. Uh, I want to, I want to come back to talk more about the broker partners. What, what are the other areas or other like core focus where tech and process can, uh, can move the needle for your org?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's primarily that I think. Like, okay. and as, and so the self-service is like the extension of the workflow to the actual broker partner. Yeah. It's fine. It's, I'm, I'm sure the technology people would say I'm doing saying it very simplistically, but, but the idea is that, that, if someone has to send something for, to us for us to do, then by definition, they're kind of fitting into our workflow. If we can allow them to do that online themselves or kind of enter into the process in a more efficient manner, then, then they can do it at the point where they feel like it's the most beneficial. And then for us, you know, it kind of takes, like I said, it takes the burden off of us to perform a task or a series of tasks um, um, that may have already either been done or maybe be being done in a different sequence than, than is optimal. So, so those are really the two primary areas of focus for us.
1: Have you heard any kind of change in tone or change in ask from your broker partners and feedback loops about what they wanted like in terms of service or tools uh, a year ago versus like what they need support on today? Like, What are you hearing from broker partners on what they care about and how HomePoint could add value to them?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, certainly some product discussion. I mean, as an example, we're starting our, we're launching home equity next week. So that's probably, you know, a good kind of product oriented example. But I'd say one of the things that we've really focused on um, in the last six months with a number of our broker partners is the assimilation of loan officers from retail to, to brokerages. And, you know, there's been, I'm sure you've seen it. I know, I know you've written about it. There's, there's been, A tremendous increase, you know, every every piece of, you know, whether it's statistical, anecdotal, everything you see shows an increased migration of of originators from retail to broker. And the brokerages um, want to ensure that they're assimilating those originators in the most efficient way possible. One, because obviously that benefits, you know, kind of benefits everybody's bottom line. But also there's a tendency with originators, if they have a bad experience, they may kind of run back to safety, right? I mean... The probably the biggest example of that was during you know post financial crisis when lots of originators ran out of broker and they ran into retail be- or bank retail more specifically because they felt that was like the safe haven. So, so a number of our partners are saying we want to ensure that you know not only can we kind of source the, these originators, we can have they can have a good experience up front and they assimilate effectively such that you know there's no chance of them kind of. You know kind of uh, like demigrating back in back back into into retail. So so we spent a lot of time with a number of our partners um, helping design processes and um, and kind of just focus on the the new new originators that are coming in that are converting over.
1: What are the market characteristics that that you see right now that that you believe are a proponent for originators moving from from retail or wholesale retail to yeah, wholesale? Well, I-
0: yeah, I, th- I mean, I the <laughs> the thing I say is that the broker superpower is choice, and that that is um, illustrated by the work that we and others have done to study the Humda data. Yeah, you know, from eighteen to twenty one, yeah, you know, in two thousand eighteen, the Humda data was expanded out so that you can make a direct apples to com- apples comparison of all costs associated with a loan, you know, between different channels of business and. Um, You could also effectively identify different channels of business. And so, you know, we went back and we looked at all that data. And um, as an example, in 2021, the average consumer that went to a broker um, saved $9,400 over going through a re, you know, through the average retail lender. So, I mean, the, the, and it's Clayton, it's every year, it's pervasive. And, you know, people always ask why. And to me, you know, kind of the simple answer is the broker's superpower is choice. They have, several lenders that they can go to, Um, they can match up the individual consumer situation with the best lender for them. Whereas a retail lender has one choice and um, that doesn't mean retail is bad. It just means that there's an inherent advantage when you have multiple ways you can go. And it also aligns the broker originator with the consumer in a way that's different and more effective. So especially in an environment like this where every dollar counts and, and every loan counts um, the uh, you know, to me, it's, it's a pleasant surprise that people are migrating as as rapidly as they are, but it makes a lot of sense for them to do so.
1: Yeah. So, what do what do you think the that brokers that are recruiting people into their brokerages? So, not not like the one and two man shops, but the folks who are building some operations. What do you think the most important? things that they need to provide are outside of choice yet, you, you know, they're approved, they're approved with their dozen or so wholesale partners and they have kind of a swath of products from the, the conventional and conforming to non QM. And um, but like in terms of tech culture leads, like what else matters that these retail originators are going to value when they, they come over to the wholesale side of the market.
0: I think uh, again, in talking with the partners that we've worked with on this, it's, it's really as much kind of almost demystifying or, or taking taking the myth out of uh, out of brokerage. Um, you know in that there, there's this idea that you lose control because you're doing business with a third party. And uh, our broker partners who have done a great job converting over originators at scale show them how you really you, not only do you not lose control, you're actually partnering with, with someone whose best interest it is to provide an enhanced level of service. And then it's observed by the, you know, by, whether it's turn times, cycle times, you know, uh, customer SAT scores. Um, it, it's really reinforced by all that. So I, th- I think it's almost like it's almost not as much an offering because you, you sell a lot of the table stakes types of things that have to be provided. It's really demystifying the process and kind of get it debunking the myths associated with doing business with a wholesale lender. Yeah, I
1: mean, you mentioned uh, like understanding the market better through Humda data. Can we go a little bit deeper? You know, a little bit of the housing data nerd over here. Are, do, you, are, do you have a data science team that's like leveraging uh, or analysts that's leveraging data directly from from Humda or working with different tools for for Humda access or research? Like, h- how does that process look like, and what tools are you leveraging to develop this understanding of the the savings that you pointed to?
0: Yeah, we do. So we do have a data science team and that's exactly what we did. We, we kind of unleashed them on the data. I mean, a little bit shame on us because for me, I'm very data driven from a kind of decision making standpoint, Clayton. And we decided to go heavy in wholesale in 2018. And it was based on trends that we saw, but we didn't have the kind of the definitive data set that says, okay, these trends are backed up by something that an advantage that's sustainable, which to me, if you're best for the consumer, that's a sustainable advantage. So in, in 21, we were looking, saying, okay, how can we prove this? And we said, wow, the Hum data has this now. <laughs> now, it had it for a couple of years, but we just kind of figured it out. So, so we took our data science team and said, go into it. And it's I, it's not as simple as it sounds because you have to analyze the data. You, you have to find consistent cohorts that are large enough to be meaningful, uh, but at the same time, that are kind of analyzable from a data standpoint. So there's, in other words, it has to be consistency amongst your cohorts. And there's literally thousands of cohorts that you can um, slice and dice the Humda data into. So it took our team about six months to come up with the initial data set and the methodology. And then we kind of edited it out. We used third parties. We used, we, you know, we partnered with aim um, to, to make sure that we were looking at this right. Um, and then from there, we kind of evolved it. You know, we looked at minorities. So, you know, minorities saved to over $10,300 uh, in 2021 going through mortgage brokerages. So, you know, it kind of went from there. But yeah, data science took a while. Uh, you got to understand the data at a very granular level. And, uh, you know, we we've, uh, had third parties look at it. And I'm, I'm proud to say that, you know, kind of what we started is now kind of the industry standard for understanding the the, uh, the broker advantage.
1: You mentioned uh, that you'll soon be launching a home equity product. When you look at the home to data, are there any other product trends that start to pop out at you that, like, you know, kind of get the wheels spinning on, oh, should we uh, be thinking about this product category or figure out how we help brokers access a certain product category?
0: Um, Not. It really you know the, I guess the downside of the humda data is it's backwards looking so yeah you get like we got 21 about three months ago I think three or four months ago so it's kind of hard to discern product trends because product as you know product trends are kind of so topical especially in a rapidly moving environment so it's probably not the best source for understanding product um, but home equity was kind of a natural based on other statistical information that we saw. You know, most notably, of course, rates rates up in primary, but also um, the amount of of equity that is being has been accreted over the last several years by homeowners.
1: When we watch uh, our article engagement and then get anecdotal feedback from originators, we hear a lot of commentary and interest in non-QM and reverse mortgages, though neither of those are really showing up in the origination data yet. Uh, reverse mortgages has reverse mortgages have their challenges. Non-QM lenders have had their challenges over the last two years. Do you see those product categories as being a more important part of 2023 and 2024, like overall product mix at uh, not necessarily for home point, but like kind of thinking about the market?
0: Yeah, I do. I, I think especially non-QM. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's been tough for non-QM. Non-QM in a volatile capital market is a challenge because you have to have, eventually have to have that takeout. And I do know there are some investors that are stepping in, I'll, I'll call it more portfolio investors, who have who are more wherewithal, who are stepping in. Um, so, you know, that could help the market grow. But I'd say of the two, I would say non-QM is more likely to be, you know, kind of a, a, a have higher concentration. Um, also, the, uh, as the agencies move kind of where their interests are, um, that that's what creates opportunity in the non cam market as well. Kind of, you know, some people consider it niche, but one percent of the mortgage market is a pretty big niche. You know, <laughs> you do that a couple times, and you get yourself in a you know a pretty robust marketplace.
1: Yeah, that, that's interesting. What, can you go a little deeper on what you mean by like where the where the agency or agencies are headed of where their interest is? I I don't know if I'm completely following that.
0: Well, I mean, you saw earlier this year that the FHFA you know, mandated that the agencies change their LLP or low-level price adjusters okay. on second homes and a high balance. So you can see that there's a little bit more of a mission focus, you know, from an FHFA slash agency perspective. And that may be what creates additional opportunity and, you know, kind of the outside the agency space. So whether you, whether you call it non-QM or not, you know, to me, it's not, you know, anything that is is not agency is not agency. Right. So I think you know, at, if, and as the um, FHFA, continues to migrate down that path that may create an opportunity for the non-agency market.
1: That's interesting. How do you think, uh do you think there's an education curve for originators to feel more comfortable with those product categories or, um, or any, any other kind of market headwinds on seeing uh kind of the non, non-conforming start to, to really take a larger piece of piece of market share?
0: Um I think it's probably not my greatest area of expertise. So I'll probably be, uh, I hope I don't prove my own ignorance, but um, I think that the more consistent the market can become in those products, the more the originators will, even if they're more challenging to do, which they should be probably. um, I think that's the more the originators will be attracted to them. So, you know, there's lots of flavors of non-QM out there and maybe the more consistency that can be brought to the product, the, the, the more comfortable originators will be with them.
1: Okay cool well, well let's move it on to another uh, equally challenging topic and t- t- talk about how we're all watching the the Federal Reserve's every move right now and listening to Jerome Powell can can you give us some guidance on like kind of how you're thinking about Fed actions and Fed rhetoric and and how that impacts your view on kind of the future of interest rates without exactly asking you to shake a crystal ball. And the answer might just be like, Hey, we, we don't predict interest rates, but like, h- how do you think about what's happening with fed and inflation with how you prepare your business?
0: Yeah. Well, here's what I'll say is that we, we don't, we don't predict the interest rates in that we don't take positions on what interest rates are going to be like, you know, we had our pipeline, we had our mortgage servicing rights asset, but you have to kind of look at what you believe interest rates will be doing in order to plan your business and so, you know, like I said, we've taken actions such that, you know, we're very defensive on the size of the mortgage market, put it that way. And that's a function not only of interest rates, but of uh, inventory, of affordability, et cetera. So I think, you know, I, I, I think the, the, the Fed's been a little bit wrong footed on this for a while. Right. So I think that they want to take every opportunity to get on top of this and ensure that inflation's not long lasting. And, uh, you know, what that it's interesting, though, because what that does to long term interest rates could be different than what it does to short term interest rates. So, you know, we'll see. But but yeah, we're not you know, we we think, uh, you know, the Fannie Mae forecast came out of one point seven trillion. We think that's an important forecast.
1: Do, do you feel so one point seven and, and total origination volume, which kind of shakes out to four and a half, five million units? Is that kind of the, what their forecast? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so I mean we're seeing the the market get cut in half but still a a, a sizable opportunity to to go to go after. Um I feel like the Yeah, that's right. Right. Uh, m- mindset's been a big part of this market and I know there's like newer originators who've never had to to go out and sell and and fight for business so as you think about like mindset that you bring forward as a leader and mindset that your AEs bring forward as they work with uh brokers how are you kind of helping your team and pulling your team along with the focus on the horizon instead of getting kind of dragged down into the the muck that we're that we're wading through right now
0: yeah i think one, there's a couple things we've done. One is we've we've taken the pressure off of volume a bit. So we've said, you know, we used to kind of target volume numbers and we would, uh, you know, maybe float margins a bit more. And we said, you know what, we're going to be a little bit more disciplined on margins. We know that's going to affect volume, but let's do that. Now let's, let's help everybody understand why. And so, you know, that obviously that's not a message that 100% of our associates, especially on the sales side and, you know, are saying, Hey, you know, happy days are here, but you know, it helps them understand we're kind of focused on the longer term and, you know, maintaining a level of uh, kind of a discipline um, associated with how we're operating. Um, I think the other thing that we talk about a lot is like focus on the things you can control and and do those effect- as effectively as you can. And don't let yourself get caught up in all the things you can't control, because, uh, you know, unfortunately, in this business, claim, there's a heck of a lot of things you can't control. That's always been true. It's just that it gets exacerbated. The, the impact of those things you can't control gets exacerbated in an environment like this. So we just try to keep our associates focused on the things they can't control and working together.
1: I mean, that's a topic that's come up a lot recently, too, is fo- focusing on the controllables. I think it was one of the the most prominent topics at Housing Wire Annual a few weeks back and in, in Scottsdale. Um and uh but something that's really hard for people to do. And personally, one of the things that like frustrates me the most when you kind of you go through conversations with colleagues, friends, family worker, family members who get so focused on the things they can't control. And, you know, a lot of the stuff you see on um, the, you know, the, the evening news, like things that we, right. we, we can't control. So how do you are, have you found any tactics or anything you've coached your team to like what you ca- what they can control and how they can focus their effort
0: there? I just think it's it's a, just a reminder. I, I try to keep uh, the team on track. And so when we get off on tangents or on things we can't control, I just kind of pull them back. So I don't know. It's probably, I think a lot of things these days, Clayton, are not like kind of like very elegant from a strategic standpoint. I think it literally is every day going in and saying, okay, what is in front of me today? You don't lose sight of the longer term, of course, but it's like, what is in front of me today that I can control and, and impact on? And what are the things, as things come in and assimilate, let me filter them in a way that kind of almost categorizes them into what I can control and what I can't control. And if I need help in, um, like cataloging that or, or prioritizing that, then that's when I reach to my peers or, or me as a leader.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Reach to your peers. I, I, one of the, um, the most important learnings that I've had over the last few years, uh, and it came from, from, uh, a peer CEO was, uh, that we operate in a cyclical industry. And the minute that you can recognize that and build your operations and strategy around that is the minute that you'll start to accelerate. And I think there's a, there's a desire in a lot of investor and operator and entrepreneurial circles to, to want to um, avoid the conversation that some industries are, are cyclical or like kind of like white, whitewash that and say like, Oh no, no, we're not, we have counter cyclical measures. But uh, if you're able to embrace the market you operate in, I, I think that as an entrepreneur, you can start to um, operate differently and unlock value in different ways, and hopefully prepare yourself to build market share through a cycle versus you know being the one that you had, didn't have the balance sheet to to support that.
0: Yeah, I think, well, you, and you said it earlier. I think very effectively, which is like it, it is a cyclical business, and sometimes not growing is okay. <laughs> it's like you know, and, and sometimes even optically if the market's down 60% and you're down 50%, you actually grew in a sense. It's like, you know, it doesn't feel like it grew, but you actually grew in a sense. So I think it, it is, it is very much recognized. Again, it's like, you don't want to focus on things you can't control, but recognize the environment that you're in.
1: Yeah. Um, one of the the trends that always comes up in cycles is people talking about consolidation and we Published an article recently with a, an interview of a, an advisor and banker to to mortgage banks who was suggesting that thirty percent of the thousand largest independents may disappear by the the end of twenty twenty three through sales, mergers, and failures. Um, that's a, you know, that's, that's a huge number. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that's a, an overstatement unless we see some players really step up and, uh, consolidate their way to serious market share. How do you, how do you think about consolidation, um, in, in a, a market cycle like this?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's kind of a natural thing, right? I mean, it, it, if, if things are, get, if everyone's getting a little bit smaller, it doesn't make sense to consolidate, take advantage of the scale that you can have and efficiencies you can have by kind of bringing things together, um, I think in mortgage, it's it, you know it's probably chall- more challenging than a lot of industries because there's a huge cultural component to it, and then there's different you know the business models are are quite varied or can be quite varied. So um, it's not as simplistic, you know, kind of saying if you can buy number two and number three, you'll get number one. It's like well, number two and number three may do business in entirely different ways with entirely different models and entirely different philosophies about it. So it's not as simple as. Saying like, you know, since I'm in Michigan, you know, put together Ford and put together GM and you'll have, you know, you'll beat the rest of them. It's like, you know, they, they make cars, but it's like we a lot of us operate differently. But yeah, they, all that said, it, it would be a natural thing in an environment like this to see some consolidation.
1: And a big part of number two and number three or number 10 and number 11's culture might be competing against their closest peer. So you like, you bring together peers Holy. who have like not, and not just at the corporate level. Like you, you have two originators in Jacksonville, Florida, who've been fighting for business every day for five years and now they're suddenly one. That's a, um, not, not an easy dynamic.
0: Totally. No, that, Yeah, that's very well said. It's very well said.
1: <laughs> so, uh, so, but, but it still seems like, consolidation and an MA will will be a big part of the next wave so do you think like those deals work out best when you're not trying to combine like to like for like like institutions like merger of equal type scenarios where you have like a a larger player who's you know who's picking off um players in the the 200 to 500 million dollar like origination like volume level versus like the the truly large strategic MA?
0: yeah I mean I, I don't know if it's easier or harder or more effective. It's just when you have large entities, obviously the there's a lot of energy that is ex, uh, expended in order to consolidate. And so then you ultimately have to determine, is that, is it valuable to do that? And usually the numbers say it is, but then the friction that comes in that period, you know, may kind of start to erode some of the numbers. I think the smaller strategy um, it, it tends to be simpler to execute on Then the question becomes, how much value are you actually generating by doing it? So, you know, I like everything just puts and takes, I think, to both.
1: Yeah. So if it's not consolidation, like what other levers have you seen successfully deployed in past cycles that have helped originators or IMBs build volume and build market share as we kind of navigate tougher market environments?
0: Um, it's, there's not much more, okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, there's so, occasionally there's innovation. I mean, if you look at, if you look at crisis, you know, look like at post-crisis, there are obviously companies that are here today because they were able to take advantage of the post-crisis environment. And, you know, one of the biggest things that, that, um, I think benefited in a number of those companies was HARP. right? When the HARP program came out, there are companies that are today that are very successful that very much leverage that program into growing beyond what they were before. So, I think it's hard to say what those catalysts might be, but I'm you know, i not saying that there's kind of nothing that would happen kind of coming out of a cycle. I think it's a little bit like you don't know what it would be, but when you see it, you want to take advantage of it. And I think for us at HomePoint, that's kind of, we're trying to position ourselves so that without, with the reset that we're doing so that whatever trend evolves, and we think broker share is the trend that will evolve for us, that we'll be able to take advantage of it. So yeah, there may be something that comes. I don't think it's readily apparent right now, but I do think that, um, there's a chance that something will come that someone will take advantage of. I mean, I have to, I have to say, like you have, you, you have, you
1: have focus, Willie. We're, we're making a couple of key bets, uh, improve ah. tech, improve processes and broker market share grow. And it sounds like home point's going to do okay.
0: Well, that's the plan. That's the plan, Clayton.
1: <laughs> so, uh, Willie, kind of to wrap, to wrap up the conversation as you, uh, as you look forward to, to 2023, what advice do you have for for other mortgage operators? You 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 have a, a long track record of success and operations in the mortgage industry, so I want to take some of the knowledge that you gained and you know pa- pass it on. Like what what advice do you have for folks that are originators or branch managers or, or other IMB leaders that adds value to the industry?
0: Wow, okay, it puts me on the spot, Clayton. So I think it's what you said. I mean, it, it's interesting because you know for us at HomePoint, we you know we we focus on something and we have we've placed our bets on brokers or our bet. I'll say not bets, one bet brokers, right? I think as an organization, make sure that you're focused on what you think is most important. And again, that could be a strategy that could be particular technology, whatever it is. And it's like, don't try to do all kinds of things because the environment is so uncertain. I got to do this and I got to do that. And I got to do the other thing. I can do everything. It's like, I, what, what has benefited me and my career and, what we believe been will benefit HomePoint is to stay focused on what you think is most important, where you think the greatest opportunity is. Maybe not tomorrow, but as we exit this cycle and get into a cycle that that um, you can take advantage of.
1: All right, thank you. I'm going to take that advice of focus and bring it into my own life.
0: All right, good.
1: Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the housing news podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.